You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome again this week to America's Web Radio, and I am Ron Bachman. The program is Healthcare Insight. And you know, and I'll say it up front of each of the next uh, several weeks or until it's no longer necessary, that we are not talking about healthcare. So anybody who's found this uh, podcast or listening to this radio program today uh, will realize that we are so far from free market solutions to anything, let alone healthcare. There's no topic or debate around healthcare. Nothing's going to pass with this administration because we are in such a desperate decline as a country and challenging our basic principles, our constitution, this socialist approach to government, this level of Marxism ideology that's taking over, this wokeness that's driving its way through our economy, through business, through entertainment, through our politics is destroying this country. And I want to focus today on what I think is one of the most brilliant minds out there talking about these issues and bringing some sanity to what seems to be an insane world. And his name is Victor Davis Hansen. And we have had programs before with uh, Professor Hansen on them. And I want to continue with that process because what he says is so valuable for all of us to hear. Certainly this audience whose interest maybe at the core is around healthcare to better understand why we're not talking about healthcare, why this country is making a change so dramatic that the idea of free markets, personal property, uh, the, the rights that we've all learned to live with and appreciate and enjoy under the Bill of Rights, under our Constitution, under our uh, Declaration of Independence, all that is going by the wayside these days and very rapidly. And I think there's a connection between some of the national issues that are going on domestically and um, in foreign policy. Now, we just saw the disaster of Afghanistan. So what I want to talk about a lot today is the connection between Afghanistan and the disasters here at home. You know, what does Afghan really mean? It's not just about Afghan uh, security. It's not about the Americans that are left behind. It's about a much broader issue that it reflects on our country and our willingness to stand up for our basic principles, to stand up for what we've always stood up for, no man left behind, yet there are thousands of remaining hostages in Afghanistan, hundreds of citizens, but thousands of others who helped our military as interpreters and other support, eyes and ears on the ground that are left behind. And we're now almost begging the terrorist organization, the Taliban, which is listed as a terrorist organization today. It still is and it always will be. And is cooperating with organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They may have internal fights, but they are all against the United States. So we've armed them with the most sophisticated weapons that we left behind, $80 billion and tons of cash that were left on pallets there to help support this terrorist organization. And there's just been a discussion about releasing $64 million more in humanitarian aid to the terrorists. Is that what we do? We leave a country with their tail tucked between our legs and then we send them money 
Well, I want to talk about all this and more with uh, Dr. Hansen. So, Dr. Hansen, let me let me get to you because you're the real brains here. I can ask some questions and give some commentary on what you're saying, but this strategic humiliation that we've gone through, can you give us some of your reflection in a broad sense as to what's happening across this country that may really be related to the mentality and the direction of what we did in leaving Afghanistan in the horrific way that we actually did. Give us some of your thoughts on what's going on in America. I think there's a great worry abroad and indeed in the United States whether the Kabul disaster reflects an ongoing decline in America. And I don't mean that materially. Uh, We have the greatest universities. We have the greatest military. We have uh, the most sophisticated technology, et cetera, et cetera. But we're in the middle of a woke revolution. We have regressed on racial relations by 50 years. We have a new generation that questions the founding date of America, the Constitution itself. Uh, we don't have a border on the South. It doesn't exist anymore. Two million are scheduled to walk across with complete legal immunity. There's a growing sense that the law is applied uh, on ideological grounds. We have a politicized military. So there's a lot of us in this country that feel that this is a reflection of a larger problem. Well, Professor Hansen, that's a pretty bleak picture of the United States and all the issues that we're having to face that seem to have cropped up overnight. But let's focus for the moment and get your thoughts on the Afghan situation and our allies. We hear so much coming back that our allies are disappointed, they're disgusted, they're upset, they're angry, whatever term you want to use at the way they were treated uh, during this Afghan withdrawal. Give me your thoughts and your observations from your contacts on our uh, allies' uh, opinion about what this has gone on with this disastrous uh, exit from Afghanistan. As far as the allies, though, that you posed, look, there were three and a half times more European allies in Afghanistan than there were Americans. And we were the ones that brought them in there, not they. They didn't say after 9-11 or something, we want to... We said, come and join us. We even almost jawbone them into saying that this was a NATO demand. And then other non-NATO members joined as well, as you know. And so to leave them hanging there without air support, which they relied on, without transportation abilities, and to do so abruptly and to give up Bagram Air Force in the middle of the night, there's some controversy about the staggering amount of weaponry left, whether it was 50 billion or 80, if you include the training and the cost associated with having Afghans used it. But if we were to use the larger figure, John, we're talking about 80% of all the money that we've given Israel since the founding of the Jewish state. We're talking enough to build or deploy 1,000 F-35. At $90 million, $85 million apiece, we're talking about seven of these new Gerald Ford aircraft carriers. So this was an underestimated and underappreciated disaster in that sense alone. Well, Professor, what do you think the implications are for future generations, what America is going to have to face? And what are some of the, the, the geopolitical implications of losing a war, American giving up to a 
a tribal society, a third world country's uh, military and determinists, and they run us out. What's the geopolitical issues that we're going to face? It's going to be a a jihadist uh, arms mark for the next generation, as well as a terrorist haven. And so that that is disturbing. The geostrategic implications of this, I think you're already seeing it in some of the Japanese media, uh, excuse me, the Chinese media. They're talking uh, as if it's a foregone conclusion, not when they would take over Taiwan, not if they would, but when. And they're telling the Taiwanese, don't suffer the fate of the Afghans. You're not under any defense umbrella with the United States. Don't laugh. The Russians are, I think, will be very tough on the Baltic states, the frontline NATO states and breakaway republics. The ball is in their court. North Korea has announced that they may start retesting. Iran has been very muscular. So So what I'm hearing you say, Professor, is that the rest of the world on the geopolitical uh, stage um, thinks that the United States has backstepped on its ability to stand up for the free world and be the deterrence. Since we have the largest military, the most powerful military the world has ever seen, most of the world has lived under that American umbrella of protection, whether it's Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Australia even. Um, Without that deterrence factor, without that fear of the United States military, It looks like we have lost and abandoned that deterrent capability. What's the consequence of that, and how would we ever get it back? The abandonment of deterrence is very easy, but the creation and maintenance is very hard. So we've got to have to, and won't do just to to say we're we're here for you. We're going to have to, in the future, demonstrably show that at, at some risk. What I'm hearing you say, Professor, is at some point down the road, we're going to have to use real force that we might not have otherwise had to use in order to prove that we are still here as a power of deterrence against aggression against other countries, whether it's from China or whether it's from Russia, Iran, North Korea. We're going to have to take some real action. You know, you make me think about when the Chinese premier was over at Mar-a-Lago at dinner with Trump and we dropped the mother of all bombs on Syria to prove a point. Um, The Chinese leader got the message as well that Trump was not gonna fool around. So in foreign policy sometimes, uh, the fear of American power uh, is a good thing as opposed to just trying to get along and they see your weakness that most of these uh, governments, most of these dictators, most of these communist regimes only respect power and that has to be applied somewhere down the road where we might not have otherwise applied it just to prove that we are still capable of standing up to aggression. Now, tell me a little bit more about, is this a real policy we should be following, and whose policy is it? Uh, Whose policy was that? You could make the argument that after 20 years and this $2 trillion dollars, the idea had morphed from eliminate the terrorist haven, pay back the architects of 9-11 uh, in retaliatory fashion, make sure that terrorists don't use it as base into, well, we can't accomplishment, accomplish that unless we rebuild it as a constitutional government. 
And that was the pre-modern state. And so after 20 years, there was a lot of dissimulation and lies about the progress. There was no progress in some ways. Superficially, there were in the cities, on the plains. But half the country and two-thirds of the population, uh, territory and two-thirds of the population was not on board. And so Donald Trump decided that he was going to withdraw down from 10,000 to zero. And then as he started to get down, and the intelligence said, this is very stupid. You can't give up the biggest Air Force base in Central Asia, and you won't be able to evacuate people orderly. And we've only lost, uh, we haven't lost one soldier in 12 months. And now it's been 18 until recent disaster. So why not just keep a residual force at Bagram, provide air support, and then look and, and look at the situation in the next few months? If they... Uh, partnership with us and they respect the integrity of the Afghan uh, national government, which I think there would be very little chance of that without coercion on our part, then stop it. Don't, I mean, accelerate the withdrawal. If not, uh, stop the, the withdrawal and perhaps leave a residual Air Force base. That was the Trump policy. Well, as you say, that was the Trump policy, but that's not what President Biden followed. He had his own policy and initiatives. I want to come back after this commercial break and talk a little bit more about the policy and the implementation of the withdrawal and what the Biden policy might be described as. We'll be right back. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Today we're talking with uh, Professor Victor Davis Hansen about uh, Afghanistan, about the American economy, about how we have changed from talking, being able to talk about free market solutions like healthcare. The real issue is how do we address some of these social issues, these political issues, the, the geopolitical um, position we find ourselves in with the re- withdrawal from Afghanistan. We finished up the last segment talking about what the Trump policy was in terms of Afghanistan. So, uh, Dr. Hansen, tell us now what the Biden policy is around Afghanistan so we can better understand how things change dramatically when Biden became president and he had to continue uh, implementing what I think everybody or the vast majority in this country at least wanted to do, and that is get out of Afghanistan because it was just 
a place where we are pouring money and people and lives into without any real return that made any sense. So what's the Biden policy for Afghanistan as best you see it? Biden came in, he reversed that, and the result was what we had. If he had followed the Trump plan and he had used air power to make the Taliban comply, I don't think we'd be in this situation, but he didn't want to. He wanted to tell the world and the nation on the anniversary of 9-11 that he was Joe Biden from Scranton. He was been underestimated in his whole life. And he was, the, he was the real progressive that got us out of Afghanistan. Professor Hansen, we'll come back to some of the uh, international um, uh, troubles that this Afghan withdrawal uh, may for, foretell. But let's turn quickly to the domestic side. Uh, how has this changed the presidency, the approval rating? What's the general population uh, in polling and in where some of the progressive legislation uh, might be impacted by the American public's dissatisfaction with the re- removal of troops and people from Afghanistan and the belief that there was a lot of misrepresentation and outright lies and distortions from this administration, from the White House, from the Pentagon, from the State Department, etc. And um, that's got to have an impact on the people's opinion of this administration and the ability to push forward uh, certain legislation that they would want domestically. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, if we were to look at polls and with the exception of two or three polls, polling operations, they seem to be center left. And as we learned from 2016, they were radically off. They all show a dramatic drop in the president's popularity from 10 to 15 points. I think even the USA Today had him down at 41 or 42 percent. And so he's the problem that he had had was that on all of these progressive agendas, the the open border at a time of COVID when 2 million are scheduled to come across without vaccinations or testing was only polling about 35% hardcore leftists. When you look at the idea that we're going to raise the price of energy or shut down pipelines or put Anwar off the table, that had only about 45% approval. So he, he, he was running, he was maintaining his 50% approval on the idea that he doesn't tweet and he's not uncouth like Donald Trump. And we needed a break from him. And he was old Joe Biden from Scranton, even though he was a vessel for the hard left. But now in this shock and this humiliation and the deaths of 13 Americans and the anger of our allies, they have put into view two things. Number one, all of these previous issues that were not popular. And two, the only strength that Joe Biden had was he was supposed to be friendly and nice, but he's in some ways cognitively challenged. And one of the manifestations of that of that dilemma is that when he's asked questions, he gets rude or he barks or he makes fun of people or he goes off on tangents or he says he says things that aren't true. Just if you have a passport, just go to the airport. They'll let you in. That's not true. The military told me I had to do this. They did not. So his only uh, ace in the hole, so to speak, the idea that personally he was not a Donald Trump seems to be eroding with this latest disaster. And it's, I shouldn't say a disaster. That's that underestimates the effect of it. it. It's so much more 
deleterious to America and its foreign policy, its image, its, its security responsibility, then all of the other issues I just mentioned put together, those were manageable. But this is not manageable. Professor, I think the country, again, is sort of uh, a strong consensus, a strong majority to get out of Afghanistan. But a residual force in a country has proven to be valuable and effective, hasn't it not? I mean, take uh, South Korea. We've had people in there for better than 50 years, and South Korea may not have started out in the most ideal way, but today it is part of the um, a nation that competes with the world, produces products, is more of a um, uh, of a culture that exports goods, uh, is productive, uh, is supportive of democratic principles, um, and we've been there for fifty years. And in fact, in Afghanistan, being there twenty years, uh, many people have grown up in those twenty years with some of the rights, especially women's rights and equal rights across the board in many parts of Afghanistan that they've enjoyed. And now that's going to be taken away. That's going to create a lot of internal uh, discourse and, and may cause a lot of internal trauma and murders to get rid of those people who have the attitudes of the Western world. So tell us about the problems and maybe even some of the good things that come out of places like our keeping troops in uh, South Korea. And, of course, for the first 20 years, people said it was a failure because the South Korean government was run by a dictatorship and it would never democratize. And, yes, it did. For everything from Sansung to Hyundai is responsible. It's a, it's an artifact or it's a dividend, I should say, of Americans on the 38th parallel. And in the case of Afghanistan, we really haven't waged a war there since 2015. We've been support. We've had tragically about 10 people killed a year, but last year we had nobody. There was about $50 million a day. At the time we're running almost a $30 trillion debt. That was a consideration. So there was a consensus that if this government is going to make it, it's going to have to, you know, to do or die within a very short period. But the difference, again, between the Trump agenda and the Pompeo agenda was we're not pulling out air support. We're not pulling out a background. We're going to station. We're going to solidify and pause at 3000. Actually, it was 3500 troops. And that will give a, a wait and see attitude and see what the Taliban is going to do. There was a sense, I think, by some of the Americans uh, in diplomacy in the Pentagon that we were westernizing each year a number of people who were born after 2001 that never had experienced the Taliban. And those numbers and the popular culture and the westernization was starting to create an alternate culture in the cities, maybe, as I said, a third of the population that had the same effect in some of the Gulf states and therefore the radical Islamists who haven't taken over Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or Qatar, the same phenomenon would happen. Uh, and it may even happen in Iraq. I'm very dubious because Afghanistan, unlike the Arab countries, did not have a lot of source of national wealth or some experience in a post-industrial world. You know, Professor, one of the excuses that the Biden administration claimed for this disaster was they were just following uh, Trump's plan that he had already negotiated, but we know the reality is he didn't. If anybody pays any attention to news or media, 
they can't even cover all that up, that he was just following what he wanted as far as a fixed timeline, did not follow the Trump plan, that that was just a made-up excuse to try to cover his butt for doing the wrong things. Uh, isn't that the reality? That's exactly right. Uh, he canceled the border wall. He, we had no illegal aliens essentially coming across the border. He stopped that. We were the, we were pumping three million more barrels of oil. We were the largest oil producer, natural gas producer in the world. He stopped the Anwar. He stopped federal the Anwar um, oil field in Alaska. He stopped the Keystone Pipeline. He told frackers that their days were numbered. He stopped all new federal leases of fossil fuels. So yeah, I mean he 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 was quite willing and able and happy to suspend all of the Trump initiatives. He's going to do another one with this massive tax increase. But so that was just that was just uh, a pretense. The fact of the matter was, is the Trump plan at some point would require Joe Biden to use force against the Taliban. Now, the reason it didn't require Donald Trump to do it, because he killed al-Baghdadi, he killed Soleimani, he bombed the crap out of ISIS. He had warned Iran he was going to respond and he had created deterrence, and they knew that if they did that, he would he dropped the mother of all bombs on them a few years ago. But they didn't know whether Joe Biden would do that. They had suspicions that he would not, and he confirmed them. And so they accelerated their aggression the more that he did not retaliate to it. Professor, I think the Biden doctrine has proved one easily identified logical conclusion to a Biden policy of withdrawal, and that is that any withdrawal creates a vacuum, and that vacuum is filled by unsavory characters, whether it's the Taliban now taking over an entire country and having relationships for extended terrorism with Iran, Pakistan, China, and other countries with ill intent towards the United States. That now becomes more dangerous, and we've supplied them with military equipment that is unlike any that our um, allies have. Many of us have heard some of the numbers, but give us a little bit of the background on the military equipment that we've left there. 75,000 vehicles. These are $5 million MRAPs. They're armed Humvees. They're armed vehicles. So a lot of people said, if you were going to pull out and you had no confidence anyway, then why not just evacuate these weapons to our allies? and give it to them if we're, you know, in that part of the world or and it would make. So a lot of the anger is that we are harder on our allies than we are on our enemies. No worse friend and no better enemy than the United States in the views of our enemies. And so now they have hostages. They have planes full of our friends and some Americans on the tarmac and they're not releasing them. So. If we, if Joe Biden thought that by giving him anywhere from 75 to 85 billion to the Taliban, that that was going to satiate them and then they wouldn't ask for more, it just made them more uh, hungry for bribes. And so I think for the next few years, we're going to have a bold Bergdahl situation, which were humiliated. An American pops up, Kandahar, an American pops up in, on the border with Pakistan, and then we're told on a video that he wants to be released, and there's going to be so many billions, so many concessions, and this is going to go on and on until we have somebody that says, stop it. 
or that we retaliate. We're going to have to do something at some at time to restore deterrence, or our allies will have to make the necessary adjustments. Professor, this is great information. I hope our audience is picking up on this. I know many out there, including myself, try to keep up with this stuff, but it is so complicated that it's very difficult at times to know all the details, and you bring a terrific um, understanding and insight so let's take another break, and I want to come back, and I want to talk about the geopolitical issues a little bit more. So uh, audience, stay with us, and we will be right back. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. And I want to continue this discussion with Victor Davis Hanson about the international issues that arise, the dangers to this country that arise from our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. We know that many people are saying that we are the worst friend but that any country could have. And from our enemy's perspective, uh, they love it because we're losing credibility with our friends. We're giving them pause as to whether or not we can be a good defender of liberties in their countries because most countries in this world, to be quite honest, have been living under the protective umbrella of the United States military. But if we can be defeated by a third world tribal culture just by outlasting us and us putting restrictions on our use of power and our inability to work with Governments. We had a corrupt government in Afghanistan. We never were able to have the right kind of political structure because the United States put up that leader that was supposed to run this country, and he was not a real leader. He was just a professor from someplace in the United States that had no real capabilities of running a country or being a leader. So he was, he was a puppet, and he was a corrupt puppet. So let's go back to the issue here of what Afghanistan has done to destroy the credibility of the United States with many of our allies and the fears that they would have. So, Professor, give us that little bit of a a geopolitical perspective on what's going on in the minds of many of our friends in that region of the world. Our people in Taiwan, in South Korea, in Japan, in the Philippines, and I do assume that in Australia together as well, who's saying, you know what, we're right on the cusp of Chinese military power and they make no 
they're not subtle about the, their use of it. And they come to us and they say to us all the time, we're the next economic juggernaut. We're on the rise. The United States is on decline. They're very dangerous people because of their radically unpredictable popular culture. They go back on their word. They'll never protect you. If you want to do business with us, then join us. Then and we're going to be pretty much uh, not very critical of your own government. We just care about business and you have to be on our side and, and provide fealty toward us and keep your mouth shut about our internal affairs. That's their message. So if we can't say to our friends that are democracies and constitutional republics, we're here for you. And we have far more military power than China does. And we're going to use it to protect you. And we're your partners. Then, then we're nothing. We're nothing. We're, there's nothing left of the Western alliance. NATO ceases to exist. So ironic that the president who was uncouth and crass and we were told by the adults in the room had unfairly jawboned NATO, succeeded in getting them to invest $100 million more in their defense budget and up the readiness of NATO powers as much as they didn't like to do that. And the person who said that he was going to reach out to NATO is all for now destroyed the alliance by humiliating it and leaving it vulnerable in a country that would, that the United States asked it to join in with. Professor Hansen, you paint a very bleak, almost dark picture of a divided America. Um, but America has been protecting the world since especially World War II and the way they rebuilt Europe and and supported Taiwan and supported South Korea and 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 helped Japan get back on its feet after Pearl Harbor. I mean, there was not a lot of reason for America to do some of these things, but historically, uh, it has been a country that didn't go and defeat countries and then dominate them or steal from them, but worked with them to get back uh, some freedoms and liberties that the United States stood for. Without the United States as a leader in the world that they've been for so long, what what will the world look like? And is there an appetite in the United States to not be the policeman of the world, but to be a moral leader and a protector in many ways of the rest of the world to protect people from terrorism and, and communism and dictatorship and authoritarianism and theocracies that uh, are so different in the way they view humanity and their worldview. What, what's the appetite in the United States for doing and continuing to do the right things by other people in other parts of the world? I'm very worried about that because traditionally American suspicion of a uh, international role, political, military, economic, came from the left. And their argument was at our birth, we were a toxic country, a hyper-capitalist country. Uh, we lacked the refinement of Europe. We're a bull in a China shop. And the sophisticated Europeans, for example, uh, have to, you know, be careful about us. And therefore, we don't have any business being in Korea or Vietnam or the Gulf. You're right, Professor. Historically, it's been the left that's been very anti-war very suspicious of the United States' involvement around the world, didn't think that we had the um, the right basic principles. We weren't as sophisticated as Europe, as you said. Um, but something's changed. What What's changed in your perspective in terms of the United States' politics around world involvement? 
But what's new is that there is a a different group of conservatives now, and some of their complaints are warranted, but their mantra has joined the left in this way. They don't like each other, obviously, but the conservative MAGA people say, well, we paid 30 or 40 percent of the NATO budget. We were there from the Berlin air wall lift. We we put our cities under the uh, nuclear exposure to protect Europe. We rebuilt Japan. We had asymmetrical trade that we ran out. And yet when we look at abroad, there was all of this anti-Americanism. And so there was a lot there's a lot of bitterness in this country that the post-war order led to the deindustrialization of the interior of the United States because we were willing to uh, put up with asymmetrical trade and other asymmetries for the greater good of the world order. Professor Hansen, what I'm hearing you say is that not only did we help protect the rest of the world and then sort of get slapped back as, you know, anti-Americanism, even though we were helping and sending monies there, but we also gave up a lot of our industrial base, specifically in the Midwest, uh, where we were buying products that were less expensive from Japan and China, and we we're allowing for uh, government subsidies from European countries on a number of products that made it uh, more competitive to buy their products and to build them here in our own country with the government subsidies that they were getting. So there's a lot of frustration about all that. As we've changed now, and that MAGA group that you're talking about comes forward and has said, wait a second, we're destroying our own country by outsourcing critical services, uh, whether that's uh, steel making or manufacturing uh, supply chains that we really need are being outsourced to other countries, making us vulnerable. Um, how has that changed now? And what's the perspective of this country on outsourcing so much of the work and carving out the uh, middle America? What I'm getting at is that I'm not, I don't want to paint a pessimistic picture. I think there's going to be some good that comes out of this. Because I think a lot of Europeans are going to say, we've got to step up to the bat. Everybody is. And we want to be not your dependent, but your partner. And we can't be your partner unless we spend a commiserate amount of GDP on defense as you do. It won't be the same, of course, in dollars, because given the asymmetries in the economies. But if we're Germans and we really feel there is such a thing as the West, we have 80 million people. It just won't do anymore for you to spend 4% on GDP with two big oceans on your borders and for us right in the middle of Europe to spend 1.6 and refuse to spend any more. That's not a situation that would be tenable. Well, Professor, if that's not tenable, and Trump, for example, was getting the Europeans to put up more money, if now they don't trust us, what's the good that's likely to come out of this in terms of any uh, realignment of defense treaties, of additional funding. How is this, you think, going to work out? So hopefully people will say either, well, the Europe's got to have their own defense forces to work in tandem with the United States, or we all have to uh, come to some type of share sharing that makes us all proportionally spend the same amount on defense. And I think that would be a, a welcome development. But that's something that for the long term right now, short term 
the American government has to restore deterrence, and it will not be restored by reassuring the Australians or the Japanese or the South Koreans, we're here with you, don't worry. It's going to have to be tangible, and it's going to have to be material, and it's going to have to say, you know what, we don't care whether it's Iran, if Iran goes and tries to attack Israel, or the, the Chinese start shooting down Taiwanese jets, or whatever it is, we're going to act, we're going to react. And we're going to act disproportionately. And we'll see if this administration is capable. Well, let me jump in there. If Europe tries to do this, but we still have to work in partnership with them, there'd be heavy reliance on the United States. Do we have the leadership over especially the next three and a half years that can step up, that can show that kind of backbone, that can make things happen uh, if we have calamities in the world? Uh what kind of leadership do you think we actually have in the United States to, that may be capable of the kind of role you're talking about? The problem is that it's very thin, that people are very critical of Mr. Blinken and Mr. Sullivan and, the, and Secretary Austin, Chief of Staff Milley, Joe Biden. But when you look at the people who would replace them, Kamala Harris or some of the other people who've been very vocal in the military or in their defense, they're even further to the left and further, uh, I guess, with a with a progressive woke agenda, which also has an element in foreign policy. So, Professor, if you, like many Americans, see this leadership team, the A-team supposedly, Um, on foreign policy and domestic policy failing so miserably and that the backup team is even worse, is more woke, more inept, more incapable of pushing our domestic and foreign policy initiatives along the lines of historical uh, American principles and values of helping our allies and deterring our enemies. What's the projection for where we go in this country? I think we're going to see the biggest um, backlash, if I could use that taboo word, that we've seen in America since the 2010 uh, midterms. I think that Republicans, if things go as they are now, could pick up 60 or 70 seats in the House. I think they could win back the Senate by two seats. And I think they're going to be in a position to have a lot of power over who's president. Here in our country, there's serious doubts after the press conferences that followed from the Kabul disaster, whether Joe Biden is cognitively up to the job at 78, given his medical history. I think a lot of people feel that if it were not for the inexperienced Kamala Harris, but if he had a, you know, uh, a sober, judicious, experienced vice president, there'd be a move within his own party. Wow, you're saying what so many of us have been thinking for so long and only a few media outlets are willing to even state out loud. But let's come back and talk about that in the next segment. So audience, stay with us. We'll be right back after this commercial. Hello, Atlanta. Have you heard? Get your motor running, whether you're born to be wild or not, because on October the 2nd from 10 till 2 at Roswell City Hall, We're hosting a car show unlike anything Roswell has seen, benefiting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and free to the public. Guests will enjoy an array of exquisite, rarely seen cars, boats, bikes, plus vendors with both automotive and art themes, along with local brewery from the earth hosting a beer garden 
offering a lunch menu, coffee barista, snow cones, photo booth, and face painting. Fun for all the family. Register your motor anytime up to the day of the event at atlmotoringfest.org. And for more information, call us, 770-645-6844. We look forward to seeing you Saturday, October the 2nd, in the perfect isolated space around Roswell City Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment on America's Web Radio. We're talking today to uh, Victor Davis Hansen. He's giving us his world perspective and geopolitical thoughts on the fall of Afghanistan, its impact on foreign policy, on domestic policy. He's one of the most qualified people in the country to give us that perspective. And for those of you who thought you were going to listen to healthcare, I'm sorry. We cannot get back to healthcare and free market solutions until we recognize and deal with some of the craziness that's going on in Washington and the inept leadership that is leading us more and more towards socialism, towards chaos. But there is no rational ability at this point to discuss things like free market health care. So we're going to continue with this process on this web podcast and webcast and radio program to talk about some of the critical social and political issues and the connection between Afghanistan and the woke community in the United States that's trying to tear us apart certainly has an element of destruction of our country's uh, basic principles, the trust that our allies have, the weakness that we show for our enemies to take advantage. We're going to see a number of major Events occur, I am sure, over time, and Professor Hansen has given us uh, some insights on what he sees happening and and uh, identifying the problems and issues that have been created along the way here. So, Professor Hansen, uh, give us some uh, quick thoughts on your assessment after all these events you've talked about on President Biden himself. So, these are really date we've never had that before, where there were people openly in both parties worried about Joe Biden, what he says, because he says things that are incoherent. And we have foreign leaders that we know go back and say, I don't know what he was talking about. He seemed confused. And so um, this is very, it's a very dangerous time. It's time, I think, for the United States to say, you know what, we've just got to stop all these superfluous ideologies and, and agendas and get back to we're all Americans and we're living in a very, very dangerous time and our very existence is at stake. And the same goes true of our our Western partners. Well, Professor, is there a global trade-off that's likely to come with this bomb administration relative to China? I'm saying, okay, if we can get China on board with um, the woke concepts of Climate change, for example, but China doesn't have to do anything for many years, but the United States has to do it early on. China would certainly agree to that. But is there, are there other things involved with 
our own businesses. You know, somebody said along the way years ago that American business would sell the enemy the noose to hang themselves on. And we certainly seem to be doing that internationally. Um, we're building up uh, China and our enemies with money, with funds, and now with more propaganda they can use against us. So is climate change um, the issue or is it more than that? I think that people in the United States would then add, it's not just climate change, that they feel that economically uh, there are people, especially in the high-tech industry and Wall Street corporations that are woke, that feel that uh, the, the Biden administration should stop the Trump economic policies toward China and reopen it. And in exchange for that, we should uh, agree to their demands that we shouldn't be so critical of them or we shouldn't be so defensive about our own allies uh, toward them. Professor Hansen, give us your perspective on how Biden might differ from the Obama administration and their approach to many of the domestic or foreign issues. Where Biden differs from Obama, not that the results won't be the same, but they do differ. Joe Biden made a Faustian bargain with the hard left. And after the Democratic primaries, it was very clear that Kamala Harris had zero support. Pete Buttigieg was a terrible candidate. Cory Booker was a terrible candidate. Bernie Sanders could not win again. He was not nearly as successful as his first try. Elizabeth Warren did not, was not All of them were too far left. There were no moderates. So Joe Biden basically should not have run. He was told by Barack Obama, quote, unquote, Joe, you don't have to do this. He did this. And in exchange, they said to him, we will stick by you and bring the 20 or 30 percent of the hard left. And then you will bring in the independent voter who is tired of the Trump tweeting and and the controversies that surround him. Some of them, most of them or many of them created by the media. And then when you get into power, however, you've got to enact the green deal. So there was a formal agreement. The problem with Obama was that he wasn't beholden to anybody. He had a very different idea from the beginning. And his idea was that it was almost ornery, punitive toward America, whose uh, role in the world he was very suspicious of, its history he was suspicious of, take the Middle East. He really did want to empower Iran, Hezbollah, the Shia Persian minority, and say, you know what, maybe the way to pay back our so-called pro-American Sunni Arab friends, the wealthy people in the Gulf, is to have a balance of power, and we'll just see if they like that. And then I think as far as China went, the Spratly Islands and all that, he was telling a lot of our allies, you know, uh, your Western capitalist democratic allies and you have inequality you haven't addressed and all of this stuff. And maybe you should just uh, take a deep breath and, and start to deal with China. See if you like that, if we're friendly with China. So it was a it was almost a triangulation away from our our traditional allies as he did in the Middle East and also with China. Let me jump in here because what I'm hearing you say is that it started with Obama and that's leftist ideology. We know that Obama always said he was more comfortable in his own writings. He said that he was more comfortable with Marxists when he was in college. And he clearly brought a the most leftist uh, perspective that we've ever had. And he may not have had the um, the votes 
to enact all of his policies. He focused more on domestic policies, but all these foreign policy relationships you're talking about, um, he moved away from our traditional allies of uh, Israel and and uh, Europe, and try to create different balance of power, which ultimately um, was not a successful way and did not have enough time to develop, even if it had a chance. But then Trump came in. So tell me about how Trump changed all of this, that maybe we're now getting back to a weak government that's getting the same results as what Obama started. Uh, but Trump had a interim period of time where things were actually being put back to normal and a different track of improving relationships and peace in areas like the Middle East with the Abrams Accord and those sorts of things. Tell us about what Trump did when he got in. The irony and the tragedy of all this is that Donald Trump saw that, somebody without political experience, and he came in to restore our traditional support for Israel, our antagonism to the theocracy, our traditional support for Australia, the Philippines, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Korea, to stand up to North Korea, to stand up to China. But the problem was that without experience in politics, he first of all didn't have people he could draw on because the bipartisan foreign relations establishment distrusted him. And second, people were so angry that they felt the left had controlled the political discourse. They wanted somebody to fire back, but Trump when he fired back, he was he was firing at a media atmosphere that there was no way of winning anybody over. So whether it was Russian collusion or the, the lies about Hunter Biden's laptop being Russian disinformation, the media and the intelligence and military complex could he was an, a voice in the wilderness and he made it worse. The more unjustly he was treated, the angrier he got. And, you know, it was a tragic he was a tragic figure because he did a lot of good. And if people had just said he's eccentric and prone to be a little off, but we in the opposition and we in the media and we in Wall Street, we in the you know, are going to treat him like we did, you know, George H.W. Bush or a regular opponent. They didn't. They wanted to destroy him. And, and he uh, he was not able to get a second term. If he was president right now for all we would know what would it be like, he would be deterring our enemies. He would be helping the countries we talked about. There would be people within those countries saying they don't like him. They don't like his attitude. We would prefer Joe Biden had won the election, but they would deep down inside feel they were safer and that the West was stronger. You know, Professor, there are certain moments in history that are critical to changing the course of the future of different peoples, different countries, different professions. And we don't know until we look back many years from now and see how critical this debacle in Afghanistan is, whether that becomes a haven for more terrorism that we've got to fight, whether they uh, combine with Pakistan, who's got a nuclear weapon, and they wind up using that in their terrorist activities, uh, take out a European city or an American city, um, we're not going to know the full extent of the damage that could be caused by our precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan and turning over so much to the Taliban. So is it 
a major change you think will wind up in history that changes the course of the world? Or is this stuff that goes back and forth, that there's a, a cyclical nature to uh, change, that the Taliban is going to wind up having a, a civil war within its own borders of with the uh, with Al Qaeda and ISIS and others, and that their theocracy will be so restrictive that that one third of the population that grew up under American freedoms during the war will rebel enough, will take out some of these leaders, will they make such changes that we'll have to go in a second time before too long and clean things up? Give us sort of that perspective. Where does this go? in the eons of time and the level of importance. Well, remember that George Bush ran in 2000 as a quasi, I I don't want to say isolationist, but he said, I'm not a nation builder. The circumstances changed where he said after 9-11 that this tit for tat, cruise missile for for terrorist acts, USS Cole, Tanzania's embassy, we got to stop that. You can make the argument that after 2015, that was a viable project in Afghanistan. Iraq, I think for all of the tragedies of Iraq, there is still a government there and they have an elections and it's got some hope. Uh, so these are cyclical. And I think the view of all of these Afghan people clinging to the plane, it, sure death to come to this country or two million people are walking a thousand miles to come here. It shook people up. And then when they saw that scene in Kabul of women who were saying, we, we've never worn a burqa in our life. I'm 18. Now I'm going to have to wear one and shooting people already. And this is just the beginning. As soon as the, the period is clear to the Taliban that we will not be retaliating and not be punitively striking them, they're going to start to be emboldened and really start killing people. So I think that'll have an effect, just like 9-11 did, just like all. Americans are very fickle, fluid, uh, malleable in that sense, and uh, because we're such a radical democracy, and that can be good and bad. But I, I think there'll be a, a return to the idea that we're not America if we just leave, leave people high and dry. Well, Professor, um, I got to stop you there. Uh, we want to have you back and have more of your thoughts about uh, domestic and foreign policy issues and the woke society and critical race theory and all those things that you become expert on. So please, audience, join us again next week and we'll have more just like this interview. If you want to see more from Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, you can catch him on a number of YouTube channels. But we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.